0: We are in the book of Acts together, making our way through, getting to the end of chapter one this morning, uh, or maybe next week. Um, Jordan Arndt is going to be preaching next week. I'm going to be with my in-laws, uh, away for the weekend, so uh, I'll miss being here, but Jordan is, is going to be, that's why I don't know exactly what, we haven't talked, what you're going to be preaching on. may have something to do with how I do today. If I do a poor job, he's going to be in chapter one next week. <laughs> Uh, Listen, last week we talked about the three things that Jesus did, uh, told his disciples to do after he ascended to go back up to to the Father. Jesus, the beginning of Acts starts with Jesus leaving his disciples, ascending back up into heaven, and um, he instructed them before he left. And so there are three things that were told that happened between the time that Jesus ascended and chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit comes, it's called Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, three things happen. So the first is that Jesus says, wait, just wait. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for what the Father has promised. So the disciples are doing that. The second thing is that they are seeking God. They're praying. They're worshiping together. No doubt they're studying the Scriptures together. They're waiting in Jerusalem, seeking God, and then the last thing I touched on last week is I said they did what they could. There was something that they did while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit, um, that, and, and that something was the, the choosing of Matthias, ch- the choosing of Judas's replacement to be brought in to apostleship. So those are the three things. And this, this morning, what we're going to do together is we're going to give a fuller treatment to Peter's words regarding Judas and the choosing of Matthias. So last week it was mentioned, but the emphasis was really on their waiting and their seeking God in prayer. Today we're going to turn and give our focus to the words and the description of of Judas, Peter's words about Judas and the giving of, and the bringing in of Matthias. So would you please stand with me, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, we're going to read 12 through 26 and our focus is going to be from verse 15 onward. This is God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem, the disciples. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. Now, this doesn't mean they traveled for a whole day. This means they traveled a Sabbath's day journey, which was about three fifths of a mile. There were rules about how far you could walk on the Sabbath day, and so they're not that far away from Jerusalem. So they walk about three fifths of a mile from Mount Olivet back to Jerusalem. When they entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren a gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And he said, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hekeladamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that Jesus, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Raise your hands and pray with me. Lord, as you showed the disciples on that day your will, through the casting of a lot, we pray that now by the illumination of your Holy Spirit, you would show us your will with regard to our lives through the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that my lips would be faithful and that the things that I am unclear on, you would remove any ambiguity on in our hearts and minds. Father, I pray that you would allow all of our hearts to seek you with truth, with honesty, that it would be a true desire to know you better in each one of us right now this morning. Father, we thank you for the word and the way it nourishes us, and now let us be fed. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated? The group of people in the upper room that we just read about is the start of the church. We're sitting here today, a handful of hundred, you know, a few hundred people, and there are other hundreds of people, dozens of people, thousands of people gathered around the world today worshiping the name of Jesus, but it started here. The group of men and women in this upper room are not just part of the church, they aren't just a subset, they are the church. This is the ground floor group. Now, it may seem strange to think that the church was about the same size as the number of youth that go on a a youth retreat from this church, but that is what is presented to us by the historian Luke. We have to think about this and ask ourselves, where did the crowds go? (laughs) You know? You read the Gospels, and you read about these these crowds, healings, and, and... And and baptisms of various amounts of people and feedings of thousands. Where were they? You read about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it seems like all of Jerusalem is just excited about Christ, excited about what he might bring to them. Now we read this about, you know, Luke's a good historian, you know, about 120 people. It's clear he wants to be precise, right? About 120 people, that's it. What happened to all those people shouting, Hosanna? It's a beautiful time of year, and um, I've already mentioned that I love looking at the leaves as they change, as do many of us. And a few weeks ago, I was walking at um, Farnsworth Park, and I noticed that it was about the time of year when all the leaves started to change, you know? And as I walked along the path, I was enjoying the trees up against the the path, and and I noticed the colors. And it was striking to me. Two days later, I was there again. But this time, I wasn't alone on the path like I was the first time. Guess what was with me? Well, lots of leaves and a woman in a little golf cart with the most ginormous blower mounted to the back end of this thing and she's driving at like 6.30 in the morning or maybe 7 o'clock on this path, blowing all the leaves off the path. Now, why do I share that? Well, I share it because it struck me that the people in Jesus' life, the people that surrounded him, are very much like the leaves. The leaves were just starting to reach peak color. But then they were blown by the cold wind of the fall, and they have fallen to the ground and died. And that picture came to my mind as I think about the people that followed Jesus, the people that shouted, Hosanna. There was something in the air that day when Jesus walked into Jerusalem, something sort of palpable. They could feel it. They could sense it. Something is going to happen. And they were really behind whatever it was. They wanted to be a part of it. Their color was turning. Things looked good. Things looked attractive. It looks like it's going in a good direction. But very, very quickly as soon as they realized that actually the deliverance and the salvation and the hope and the glory that Jesus offered was not as they had envisioned it, as soon as they realized that it wasn't the glory and, and, the, and the vindication that would be felt in this world over against the Romans or, or anyone else, that was a harsh reality. That knocked them. That blew them. And just as they were starting to turn and things were starting to look quite wonderful in Jesus' ministry, all those people fell to the ground and died. Their faith withered. It wasn't in Christ. It was in something that they hoped that he would provide for them. And so here we are in Acts chapter 1, the start of the church. Jesus is just gone. And there is a room in Jerusalem that is filled with 120 people, and that is the church. The yield at one time looked promising, but the chaff was separated from the wheat, and this is what remained. This is the church, 120 people. It's the beginning of Christ's church. It was small, and I I, I point that out because uh, there is something that we should notice about this group. Though the church is small at this point, there is something that we need to notice, and that is that the work of the church, we're going to start here, the work of the church is messy. Now, when I got up here, I thanked you all for helping clean up. And if you think to last evening, you can understand that this building was messy, right? Hay everywhere, sand everywhere, candy everywhere. But that's not what I'm talking about when I say that the church, the work of the church is messy. The passage that we just read about together is about replacement. Peter's address is about replacing Judas with another man. It is about the light being taken from one, the lamp being really snuffed out on one, and the light being given to another—it's about the talent that was given to the one being taken back and given to the other, not because, uh, not because of a physical messiness, but because of moral failure, because of sin, because of abandonment, because of betrayal. The work of the church is messy from its conception. It's the reason I, I mentioned that this is the very genesis of the church this morning. It's, and it's a small group. We're not even talking a big church, 120 people, and yet here at this point, it's messy. The church is dealing with issues, the consequences of sins, the effects of being sinners. It is a work that is mixed with joy and sorrow, pain and praise, and we must remember that at the end of the day, or, or maybe at the beginning of the day, that the church is not about plastic perfection. It didn't start this way. It does not continue this way. The church is not about men and women that have everything together, that doesn't have any issues or baggage. The church is messy. It's real. It's been, I heard somebody say that the church is more like, a, a, it's more akin to a hospital than it is to a museum. The messiness that's on display here right out of the gate in our passage is is what is addressed as Peter gets up to speak. His first initial message as he opens his mouth is a difficult one. He's addressing a gaping hole in the lineup of the disciples. As we read the passage this morning, you notice that Luke recounts every one of the disciples except Judas by name, the gaping hole is pointed. It's something that all of the disciples feel at this point. There have been 12 for the past three years. Now there are 11. But just as we will see that God supplies a replacement for Judas, we must remember that even in the church's messiness, Jesus is always dispensing and offering a hope and a future for those that are humble and willing to seek him. He's always willing to work through your sins, your mess, to bring about healing and faith. But you must look to him. You must humble yourself and look to him. And that that truth is something that I hope to illustrate with the rest of this sermon. So having said that, I've titled this sermon, The Tale of Two Small Men. The Tale of Two Small Men. What I'd like to do is to speak to you about Two men that serve as the focus for these verses, Judas and his replacement, Matthias. Both of them were small, but in different ways. We're going to look at Judas first and then consider Matthias second. So first, what can be learned from our passage about Judas? What are we told from our passage about the character of Judas? There's three things that I want to point out, and we're not going to go totally in order here, but we're going to work our way through three different couplings of verses. Verse 16 and 17 says, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us, and he received his share in this ministry. Jesus first, Judas was counted among the 12 disciples, and he received a share in the ministry. Now looking back on it, from our perspective, we likely view Judas as the black sheep of the disciples, don't we? When you think about Judas, you think he, he was, yeah, he's the bad one. He's like a Professor Snape figure, you know, he's just unsettling, he's dark, he's probably pale. If you imagine that this was the way that the other 11 disciples related to to Judas, you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. They did not think about Judas in the way that you think about him. In fact, there's nothing to suggest that they had even the slightest inkling that he wasn't one of them. On the contrary, we are told that during the Last Supper, Jesus was sitting with his disciples before he was betrayed, and he was speaking to them. And he said to them... Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Jesus is sitting there with the twelve, perhaps even in the same room that the disciples find themselves in right now. And he said that truly I say to you, one of you, one out of twelve is going to betray me. They, the disciples, responded by looking at Jesus, being grieved and saying to him one by one, surely it is not I. You might think that when Jesus had said that one of them was going to betray him, they would have all, with one accord, gone like this, to look at Judas. But that's obviously not what they do. They are chiefly concerned that the one who's going to betray them is not them themselves. They don't have a unified suspicion that Judas is this sinister, evil betrayer. He's one of them. He was counted among them and given a share in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus called him just as he had called the other 11. It wasn't a mistake. It was not an oversight. Jesus meant to call 12 men. And if you think about it, that's not a very big group, and we're not going to talk about the number 12 and the significance this morning, but 12 men. Really not a very big group for what Jesus was setting out to accomplish in the scope of the entire world. But Judas was counted as one of the 12. I had a friend in high school, and we ended up both going to Bowling Green together. And um, I didn't play sports in college, but he decided he wanted... We had played football for a couple of years, junior high and freshman year. And my friend decided he wanted to walk on to the Bowling Green football team. So in a technical sense, I guess he could say he was counted as part of the team. But honestly, not really. Right? I knew him. I mean, I knew him. I played football with him, right? What did he do? Well, I'm not even sure he played very much in practice. Uh, his involvement was extremely limited. He didn't ever go and play in a game, not even when they were doing well. He was counted a part of the team, but not really, you know. This was not the way it was with Judas, okay? He was one of them. He was just as much a part of them as anybody else. He was called by Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. He listened to Jesus teach. He prayed with Jesus. He sang with Christ. He preached alongside Jesus. He ate with Christ. He helped alongside Jesus Christ. He's not a benchwarmer. He's not on the team in name only, kind of hiding out in the back of the room. Yeah, with them, hey. You know, he was one of them. In Luke's gospel, he records that Jesus called the 12 together. And he gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healings. So his being counted among the disciples is not just a title. And it doesn't just reflect that he was with Jesus, walking around with him and and listening to him. He also was given real power and authority, and he was sent out to do the work of proclaiming the kingdom. Judas did that. If he wasn't counted among the disciples, if he didn't receive a share, I'm sorry, if he was counted, rather, among the disciples and he received a share in the ministry, why isn't he there? What happened to him? Peter's reminding the other ten That Judas was called, and he received a share in this ministry. And I think it's interesting, he says, this ministry. He's not just looking back at what happened in the past. He's looking forward. If Peter is not looking forward to this ministry that that is ahead of them, why on earth pick another disciple? Why on earth pick? It's stupid. Why pick another apostle if the ministry he's referring to is only in in the background? He's looking ahead and saying, this ahead was, Judas had a part in this. So where is he? Why isn't he there? Well, he isn't there because he betrayed Jesus. This is the second thing that our passage speaks to us about. He became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. This point is really tied at the hip with the first. The Pharisees were not able to betray Jesus because they had never been brought in by him. They were never his friends. They were always his enemies. An enemy cannot betray another enemy. It takes a friend to betray. The Pharisees would never dare kiss Jesus on the the cheek. They would never have been that close to him, nor had that sort of affection for him. Judas, on the other hand, was. Because he was counted as one of Jesus' disciples, because he was given a share in the ministry, he had something to betray He had earned everyone's trust. The disciples didn't suspect his treachery. Now we see Judas's smallness. Again, the tale of two small men. His smallness begins to emerge. He was a small man. In wartime, traitors are the very most despised. No one has sympathy for those who are so cowardly that they betray their country to get ahead personally. I was thinking about this fact and I think that this idea is uh, personified or or characterized in Edmund and the Narnia story. Edmund is a traitor and he's also pathetic and cowardly. That's his character. We're told in Matthew 26 that then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and he said... What are you willing to give me for me to betray him to you? So the Pharisees must have put up, you know, wanted posters all over Jerusalem. Reward. They hadn't gone knocking on Judas's door. He had sought them out. He had decided it sure would be nice to have a little extra money. This is consistent with his character. We're told elsewhere that he was a thief and a robber, and he would pilfer from from the donations that were given to Jesus and to the 12th. And so he loves money. This love of money is unrepented of. And it leads him to be covetous and greedy. And he says, there's a profit to be made here. And so we're told he went to the Pharisees and said, how much are you willing to give me to betray Jesus to you. They weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And we're told from that time on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas was a betrayer. This is the opportunism of a small man, to betray a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Small, pathetic, is it, it, it is the small man that looks out for his own self rather than for the needs of others around him, that places his own desires above the good of those around him. A short time later, Judas is going to find his opportunity to betray Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. And he tells them that he is going to identify Jesus so they know which one to grab with a kiss, as I mentioned early, Earlier. Is this not the epitome of a small man? Not even willing to acknowledge what you're doing in the moment. Not even willing to be a man about it and just betray him openly. To walk up and give him a kiss, a sign of affection. Is this not pathetic and small? Disgustingly small. I want to ask you a question, though. Was Judas' betrayal of Jesus his His greatest sin. Did Peter not also betray Christ? Three separate times. Does it make a substantial difference that Judas betrayed Jesus for personal gain and Peter denied him for the gain of his own comfort and protection and reputation? I don't think so. Think about those that were gathered in the room as Peter was speaking. They were all faithless. They had all failed Christ. None of them could claim that they had been pure in their devotion or unwavering in their commitment. They had all faltered and blundered badly. Think again about Peter and Judas. Both had forsaken Jesus, each in their own way. Now Peter is the spokesman. He's the leader of the disciples. He's the rock that Jesus said he was going to build his church on. Judas is dead. How did that happen? It happened because Peter repented and Judas did not at this point that we see Judas' Judas's smallness most clearly. This is the third thing. The first thing that we said about Judas is that he was counted and given a share. The second thing we learn about Judas is that he was a betrayer. The third thing that we learn from this passage is that he was not repentant for his betrayal. He was not repentant for failing Jesus like some of the other disciples were. Why do I say Jesus, Judas didn't repent? In verse 18 and 19, Luke inserts an editorial parenthesis into Peter's speech. It should be in brackets in your Bible. Peter is likely explaining the circumstances surrounding Judas's death to his, his audience. And it says this. I'm going to reread it. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the price of his own wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, the field was called Hekaladama, the field of blood. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are given more details with regard to Judas's uh, demise and his lack of repentance. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 27, and it says this, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and all of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. This is the night after G- Judas betrayed Jesus. And the chief priests and the peoples bound him and led him away to be delivered to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. It's not our problem. Go deal with it. So he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. They conferred together, and with the money they bought a potter's field as a burial place for strangers, and for that reason, the field has been called a field of blood to this day. That's what Matthew tells us. Matthew and Luke are providing different details on an overlapping account. Their, Their accounts are from different angles, but they overlap. There may seem to you to be some discrepancies between the accounts, but there are none. There don't need to be. For instance, Luke says that Judas bought a field with his own money. Matthew says that the priests bought the field uh, on his behalf after he died. The money was still Judas's. They refused to take it back. They couldn't take it back. It was blood money. And so they, he went and hung himself, hanged himself, and, and they bought a field on his behalf. Both statements are true. Both fit together. Look at the details. Think about the details that these accounts provide for us we see that Judas' demise was horrible and tragic. We're told that when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. Perhaps Judas didn't think that he was actually going to die. It's my thought that there were various times during Jesus' ministry when the Pharisees tried to grab him They tried to kill Jesus at various points, and Scripture says at various times that Jesus evaded their grasp. It's like it doesn't really explain how, but his time had not come, and though the Pharisees are trying to grab him, you know, he just got away. And uh, I don't know whether it's true, but it it is my thought that in in Judas' mind, I think he probably thought he would get away like he did at other times, and so he'd make some money, and the consequence wouldn't be that great. He'd lose a friendship, but nothing catastrophic would happen. He'd always seemed to get away in the past. Couldn't he do it again? But when he saw that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse. Notice that we are not told that Judas repented. Remorse and repentance are very different landing strips for the sinner to land on. There are many who feel remorse. What is remorse? Guilt, sorrow over their sin. But it is not a godly sorrow and it does not yield the fruit of repentance in a life. 2 Corinthians says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so there is a sorrow according to the will of God and a sorrow that is not according to the will of God. A sorrow that is fruitful and a sorrow that is unfruitful and that does not yield anything in the end. No doubt Judas had sorrow and guilt over what he had done. No doubt he had a troubled conscience, but he did not seek repentance. Repentance. What did his remorse lead him to do? Have you ever thought about this? The passage tells us that he returned the money and threw it in to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. He recognizes that he's done wrong. But this is something I'd never thought about. and My wife, Elia, pointed it out to me this week. She said, don't you think he should have gone to God rather than going to the Chief priests? I mean, isn't that just like a, yeah, he was not repentant. Who did he go back to? He went back to the chief priests and tried to make right with them. Don't you think he could have prayed and begged for forgiveness rather than seeking to rectify the situation by giving back the money? Don't you see that's what he's trying to do? He's trying to fix his problem, which is always going to put you in a desperate state because you can't fix your problem. That's part of what the gospel says. You've got a problem that you can't fix. That's the reason for Christ. And he feels remorse. And he feels terrible. But he's not repentant. He's not soft-hearted toward God. He says, I'm going to fix my own problem. He takes the money back to the, to the, to the religious leaders. And then when they say, well, we're not going to take it, he says, throw it in. His state of unrepentance is seen finally in his last action, the taking of his own life. It is the small man that is not willing to deal with God. It is the small man that is unwilling to repent. It is the small man that says, I can find myself when it is clear that they're lost. It is the small man who says, I will make my own way, I will fix my own problems when God has made a way for you. Peter said that Judas turned aside to go to his own place. It is the small man that is called to walk alongside Jesus, but then turns away. It is the small man who is told, I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you, but who decides that he is going to go to his own place instead. Judas was a small man, small in a proud, cowardly sort of way. And at this point, given the topic of our passage, I think that it's only right that we address um, what he did in taking his own life. We live in a day where his final action, the taking of his life, suicide, is at an all-time high and where victim culture dignifies self-harm. It's popular. It's talked about by people on the internet in a way that make it seem attractive. In a res- it's, it's presented as a respectable way of dealing with your problems, or at least a, a socially acceptable way. We read Luke's account of Judas's end, falling headlong and rupturing, and there is nothing heroic nor noble about suicide. That's one of the things that we need to learn from this passage. He's very graphic and for a reason. There's nothing heroic or noble about suicide. Now, I want to say here that I know that there are many who have lost someone to suicide. There are people in this room who have lost people that they love dearly because of suicide. That fact alone cannot stop us from seeing and speaking of the true nature and the true tragedy of the sin of suicide. I don't deny that suicide is often tied to much internal struggle and pain and hopelessness. But it is pain and remorse that refuses to look to Christ for help. It is hopelessness that contradicts and refuses the hope that Jesus offers to us. Jesus said that he laid down his life and that he would take it up again. And as I was thinking about this passage, it struck me that suicide is exactly the inverse of what Jesus said he would do. Whereas Jesus laid down his life and had the ability to take it up again, suicide is taking your life so that you don't have to lay it down for Jesus or for anyone else. Judas heard Jesus say that he was going to lay his life down as a sacrifice. But Judas took his own life in rejection of Jesus' sacrifice. Suicide is a proud rejection of the free gift of God. So I'm trying to highlight here the pride in Judas at this point and his unwillingness to repent. To bend his knee to Christ. I want to say to you do not fantasize about suicide. Do not dignify it by giving it your consideration or treating it as normal or acceptable. It is not, it is a tragedy. And if you know those that are tempted by it, I would call on you as Jesus would to speak to them about the hope that he offers. Those who are drawn to it are believing a lie of Satan that there is no hope, and yet there is all the hope in the world. Judas' death was his final act of defiance. It was his final act of shaking his fist at God to take the life that Jesus would die to save. In his smallness, he was unrepentant until the end. So that's Judas. That's what we learn about him from this passage. He was counted one of the twelve, and given a part of the ministry. He was a betrayer. He failed Christ. He turned his back on Christ. But worse than that, he was not repentant. He did not ever go back to Christ. He did not seek God. He sought to remedy his own problems. He sought to fix himself, and his end was tragic. I said earlier that this sermon is titled The Tale of Two Small Men. And now that we've spent the majority of our time considering Judas's smallness, I'd like to briefly think about Matthias. What do we know about the man that Christ chose to be Judas's replacement? What do you know about him? Not much. In fact, his name only appears twice in the Bible. And those two times are in this very passage. So after he's chosen, we'll never hear about him again. Not anything in all the pages of Scripture records anything about this man other than what we're told here. And there are a few things that we can gather from what we're told. And they're beautiful things. First, he met the the criterion that Peter set out for uh, for apostleship. Matthias was a man that accompanied the 12 throughout Jesus' entire earthly ministry. You ever think about that? Peter said that the man who would replace Judas had to be a man who was with them from the beginning, from the time that John the Baptist baptized Christ until the point of the ascension. That's the entire earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. How many others could claim this? Well, at least Joseph, Barsabbas, at least one other. But probably not that many. I mean, how often do you think? We always think of Jesus with the twelve. But here's testimony that there were other men from the very beginning that were with Jesus along every step of the way. No doubt helping distribute the bread and the fish, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. They're every step of the way. Matthias was one of these guys. From this, we can deduce a few things. First is that Matthias was faithful. Three years of traveling with Jesus, ups and downs, popularity, hatred, you know, people listening, people raging at Christ. He's with them the whole time. The great majority left. We already talked about that at the beginning of our service. Many, many, many had fallen away. Only a small sliver of, of people still remained faithful to Jesus throughout all of his trials, through the unmet expectations that they might have had. He was faithful. Along with being faithful, here's something else we can deduce. Listen. He was content. Have you ever thought about being, there being other men alongside Jesus? Other men that were faithful and qualified for the work of discipleship, but that weren't ever called? He obviously met the prerequisites. Peter said, you know the hearts of these men. Show us which one should assume Judas' seat. God knew his heart. His heart was good. He wasn't a disciple, but he was content. Remember that even the disciples argued, who's the greatest? Which one of us is going to be, you know, the top dog? Jealousy and arguing. The disciples are regular men, just like you. Sinners. But this man, Matthias, he's content. He doesn't get angry that he doesn't get the recognition of the other disciples. He doesn't get angry that his name's only written twice in the Bible. He's faithful to Jesus throughout his years of ministry at every step. He's content. He's just happy to be there. He's happy to dedicate his life to the work of Christ. So Matthias is faithful and content, and he's humble. And we know this because God vouches for him the purity of his heart. Now, it's fitting, this is the thing that, you know, it really made me start thinking about the idea of smallness in the Is that I was reading a little bit about Matthias. I was curious, just what's up with this guy? He's humble. You know what his name means in Hebrew? God's small one. God's small one. You see, he was small. But at the inverse of Judas. He was small in his own estimation. He was humble. He did not consider himself owed anything. He was not self-seeking. He was happy to be small under the banner of his great Savior. How could he be anything else? And God exalted him. That's, That's what happens in the end of this chapter. God exalts him. So I want to ask you as we close together this morning, what sort of small man are you? What sort of small woman are you? Both are found in the church, Judas's and Matthias's. That's a word. Both are in the church. Both were with Jesus. Which are you? Their ends are very different. It is the man that is small in his own estimation, that is humble, that God will exalt. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We're also told to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you. And that's what we see in the case of Matthias. But Judas was small as well, but in the self-seeking, flattering, cowardly way. He was small in that he was puffed up with conceit and pride. So though he was small, it was not a smallness that allowed him to humble himself under anything. He was not small enough to... To fit under God's mighty hand, that was far too low. He would not stoop like that. That was beneath him. He wasn't willing to go that way. If you're small and unwilling to come to God, if your pride keeps you from repentance, then the reality is is that whether you die of old age or you die in the hospital, your death will be like Judas's. It may not be in the same manner, but it will be the same end. And that is tragedy. Tragedy. And I would warn you not to share his fate. Instead, the message of this passage testifies to the power and the glory of humility. There's going to be sin in the church. It's messy. We started there. But there's power and glory in humility and seeking God. I spoke about the humility of the church in the beginning, the smallness of the church. Jesus' followers were commissioned to change the world, and they were only 120 people. There was no glory to this group. There was nothing noteworthy uh, in an earthly sense about them. It was small, humble, meager, but that didn't matter. They looked to God for their strength, and he came through for them in a way that changed the world. And we're going to see and read about this in the chapters ahead, and I'm excited to to do that. We see the same thing in Matthias. He was God's small one, content and faithful, ready to serve and unentitled, and God chose him to occupy the apostolic seat. And so I leave you this morning with this question What small man will you emulate? What will characterize your life? What will characterize your death? Let's pray.